this morning. As you know, we have a few things coming up here real soon, and they're in your bulletin. You'll, you'll find and follow a lot of the, uh, the activities uh, for, for a small church. We do have a lot of activities, a lot of things going on. We have our revivals that are set for June, July, and August. The dates are there in your, your bulletin. The first one's going to be June 26th, I believe. 25, 26, 25, I don't know, on Friday, that weekend, and we start at 7 o'clock, I'd like to get some of you guys here early to help us to prepare, we will be meeting next Sunday, uh, as a planning meeting, as far as getting everybody together to see what it is that um, you will be doing and how this is going to um, just help this event be an awesome event. We also have started what's called our Friday Night Youth, and uh, they're meeting here at 7 o'clock at night. Uh, no, 6, 6 p.m., 6 p.m., uh, Devon's right back here, and Serena, his wife, if you guys want to see who he is and bring your kids, uh, and uh, just have a good time. They had a good, good nice, good little group out here just uh, this last weekend, first time out, so we're praying that that continues to grow, go and grow. And um, we have Father's Day coming up, so don't forget about that. Dads, um, be honorable. The Bible says that your children have to honor you, and I've always wondered, why is it that God says, honor your father and your mother? You know why? Because, you know, sometimes it's not easy. It's not easy to do it out of your own free will. Sometimes parents aren't honorable. Fathers, I want to ask you to be honorable and pray that the Lord lead you in that, in that step so that you can be honored and uh, your children and their children's children will come back <laughs> and visit you. And uh, so anyways, that's, uh, that's for next month here in, on Father's Day. So. Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, and I'll be reading from verse 21 to chapter 5, verse 1. You know, it's interesting that um, as I was, what I had done last week for Mother's Day is I, I started with this portion of Scripture, and, and it kind of fell right into place as to, uh, for Mother's Day, and you'll see here in just a little bit, where Paul is talking about our Jerusalem, which is in heaven. She is our mother. And I kind of springboarded off of that into a topical teaching of how the Bible honors mothers and wives, uh, excuse me, and women uh, in general, but mothers especially. And so I figured, okay, well, I, I, I touched on it. I, I dealt with it. Let's jump into chapter 5. And, uh, you know, because the more I read this, I go, you know, Lord, who preaches out of this portion of Scripture? You know, who, who actually does a Bible study out of this? And, and, and uh, well, here we are. We're going to go ahead and go through it. And, uh, and I pray that it blesses you as much as it's blessed me. I mean, just diving into it and, and looking at it. And part of the reason is uh, that it, it is a little um, difficult to actually read through. It's, it goes back to the Old Testament. Paul calls it an allegory. An allegory basically has a hidden meaning. Uh, it could be a real story or a fake story or a pretend story. It has a hidden meaning, and, and this story here doesn't have a hidden meaning. It's, it's fact. It's historical. It's, and Paul's been using this, this compare, this simile, this, uh, this, this, this type of style of writing to be able to compare the law and, the, and freedom. We are, we are free. We are born free. And so I'm going to read through this. I'm going to come back and, and uh, just kind of we're going to unpack it, and we'll see how that, that goes. And I pray that you're able to receive that same blessing that I did. But before we get there, I, I just wanted to share with you that as we're coming up to our 4th of July season and we start talking about freedom and, and how, how we look at freedom, and most of us really 
want to be free. As a matter of fact, I think that freedom in the world, the world seeks, is a freedom where you can do whatever it is that you please, whatever you want to do. And to some extent, I guess that is freedom, but not really freedom in the sense of what the Bible talks about. The Bible is talking about our freedom in Christ, our freedom to, to live in, in grace, our freedom to, to live and rejoice, our freedom to persevere, our freedom to know who Jesus Christ is. But the world wants to do whatever their sinful flesh desires. And that has always been the, the, the goal of most people in the world. But when we look at that, it's really not, you're really not free. You're, you're really more in bondage to sin is what the Bible calls it. And I think that a lot, a lot of people, especially in America, because we have this um, preamble to our Constitution where we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and uh, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and which include, among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so this freedom that we have and this life that we're pursuing and this, this pursuit of happiness that we're trying to receive... We, we, we somehow have brought it into the church. In the church, in the church, we equate that with, you know, well, I'm free. I, I need to be free, and I need to pursue happiness because, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Isn't that his goal in life? Isn't that why he died on the cross, so that I can be happy? Isn't that, I mean, you know, and, and we somehow translate that into our jobs and into our schools or our friendships. And, and if, if I'm not happy in this job, well, I know God wants me to be happy, so I'll just move on and find me a job that's going to make me happy. And, and I want you to know, beloved, that wherever you go, you're not going to be happy all the time. And I don't care what kind of job you have. You're going to get there. It's going to be great for a while. The money's going to be good. Then after a while, you're thinking, can I just pay somebody to get me out of here? I'll pay them what I'm making, you know, because of personalities or whatever the case may be. Some people equate that to be uh, that they need to be happy in their marriage. And this wife or this husband no longer makes me happy. So therefore, I need to find somebody because God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? He wants me to be free to choose and happy to be able to do what it is that I want to do. He wants me to be happy. You know, what the Bible teaches, beloved, is that God desires for you to be holy. That's what he desires you to be. The reason Jesus Christ died on the cross was for you to be holy. And he desires for every one, of his, uh, every one of his children to be holy. And so what happens here, as we're going through the book of Galatians, Paul has been talking to the people that have been influenced by outside sources. Now, we call them Judaizers because they were stuck on the law. And just to make some distinctions here, because we've been talking about this quite a bit, and I just throw out these terms, and, and I'm hoping everybody is understanding what I'm saying. Jesus Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Paul says we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. You're not saved by the law, so therefore you cannot live by the law, and you should not live by the law. Well, when Paul is talking about the law, you have to remember that at the very beginning, these Judaizers were coming to the church, these Christians, these brothers, he calls them brothers, we'll see here in just a bit. They're coming to these believers that have been redeemed and saying, okay, now that you're saved, you have to understand that the only reason that you are saved, in order to be truly saved, you have to follow the traditions, the commandments, the, not the moral law. The moral law, yes, you have to continue to follow that. But what Paul is talking against is the traditions of uh, all the things that are symbols, like, for instance, the circumcision, the Passover, the sacrificial lamb. All those things were symbols of something yet to come. Paul calls them a schoolteacher, a tutor. It was set there so he can look over us until Jesus Christ came and abolished all of that. Now we live under grace. 
I mean, we still keep the, the commandments of, you know, do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder. Those are some of the things that, you know, that the moral law encompasses. And we teach those and we live those. And by the grace of God, we're able to fulfill those. And so what Paul is, is arguing here once again, he's saying, look, this is what it's like. This is more of an, not an allegory, but, but a, an illustration. This is more of how it should all fit together. The slave woman and the free woman. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read the scriptures, and then from there, we're going to jump right into what it is that we're talking about. But in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, it reads like this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, and who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at, at, the time, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of Scripture that somehow seems to mumble up and jumble up a lot of our thought process as to what Paul is trying to say. And I pray, Father, that right now that we can just walk through it and you expound on it, Lord, and help us to see what it is you're teaching. Give us direction through your holy scriptures, Father, because we know that your word is true. Lead us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. As I mentioned, the, one of the problems with this portion of scripture is found in verse 24 where it says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. The Greek word that is used there is allegoreo, and allegoreo, instead of being trans, uh, translated, it was transliterated. It was transliterated to make it sound like the, the Greek word. And it should have been translated to have the true meaning of what allegoreo means. And allegoreo is made up of two different words. And it's more of a, an, an, uh, uh, things that talked about figuratively. We'll talk about this when we get there. But that makes it a little bit of a, a difficult, a, of a challenge to be able to understand, okay, so, so how is this an allegory? An allegory, as I mentioned, is, is a story that gives a hidden meaning. And there is no hidden meaning here. As a matter of fact, I don't think there really is any hidden meanings within the Bible. You know, because when you start talking about interpreting Scripture allegorically, uh, and you start talking about how these things say this, but they really are meaning this, then you can get into all kinds of trouble. 
Uh, people have done this in the past. They, they continue to do it. The Hebrew people, they would equate letters, or excuse me, numbers to all the letters. And because the letters were a number in the alphabet, they would take those numbers and allegorically try to figure out what the hidden meaning was. And so you have a lot of things that came out of that that would instruct them. And, and so they, you can just take off your imagination, can just run wild. Some of the things that the early church used to do was to take these allegories, these stories, like, for instance, the sons of uh, Job, the seven sons of Job. The church at that time thought and they believed that those seven sons of Job represented the 12 apostles. Now, not only is that ridiculous, it's bad math. I mean, you know, how do you figure seven from 12 or 12 from seven? The two coins that were given to the, uh, to the innkeeper by the, the good Samaritan when he picked up the one that was beat up and bruised, somehow represent the Lord's Supper and the baptism, which is symbols of salvation. But just to give you a few examples as to how allegories in the Bible somehow just mix up what the Word of God says. Now, if you've been listening to me, to me any time, uh, for any length of time, you will know that I've always said it says what it says. And it says what it says. And anything that we need to take out of what he's trying to say or what the, the writer is trying to say Typically, he'll have some sort of an explanation. Like, for instance, Jesus, he gave parables. Parables did have a hidden meaning in a sense, but he always described them, and he gave the instruction to his disciples. He told them what it meant. There's no hidden meaning here. I'm just sharing this so that those that have ears will not hear, and those that can see cannot see, because this is hidden for you, and I'll tell you what this is. A lot of the uh, prophetic writings in the, in the book of Revelation has, has a lot of symbolism to it as well. And I'm just going over some, some thoughts as to how this kind of will all fit together. Because in symbolism, in the Old Testament, when, when John was writing to the church or the churches and he's talking to them, he says, he says things that it was common knowledge for the people at that day. Like, for instance, the number 666. It had a significant meaning. We don't know what it is. I mean, you can kind of figure it out. But a lot of what Paul, uh, John was talking about was known to the people, but it was hidden from the sources that were out there trying to destroy the church. Like, for instance, today, if I were to tell you, uh, if I would just throw the number out, 9-11, what would that mean to you? And for right away, you know, most of you, I think, would think that take you right back to the time that the towers were destroyed. It might even take you to the moment that you saw or you heard the first instance. I know exactly where I was at. I was on the freeway. I was on the freeway passing the Ontario airport, realizing there are no planes in the sky. And I'm listening to the news, and I'm seeing, okay, I can see what's going on here. I pulled over to the side of the road. People were crying. I can see them in their cars and making phone calls, and it was just an eerie, eerie time. So for me, 9-11 has a profound meaning. You know, in a couple hundred years from now, you say 9-11, they're going to say, was that the new 7-11? What happened to 8-11? You know, they, they won't know. So, so there are symbols within the Bible. There are stories and, and uh, illustrations that Jesus uses in parables and similes and, and allegories. There's nothing hidden. There isn't. You see, what Paul had talked about prior to us, uh, to, us uh, to this portion of Scripture, in, first, in 2 Corinthians, says, The man without the Spirit does not understand the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. And all these things are foolishness to them. And if you're not understanding God's Word, if it's not making any sense, one of the things that happens is that the heart has not been transformed. And of course, it's going to be just a story. Of course, it's not going to make sense. And so we, we have to be careful that not to try to add to 
what the Bible already says. So unfortunately for us, in the King James, the NASB, and I believe the, the English Standard Version as well, it has been, tra it has been translated into uh, allegory, but it's really more of an illustration. And we'll, we'll go on and, we'll, and I'll walk, walk you through this in just a bit. But number one, what Paul is trying to get across is, look, this is, this is where you guys are. You guys were, were at one time slaves to sin. And now you guys are free in Jesus Christ. And now it's interesting because these people in Galatia, these are, these are um, Gentiles. They're not Jewish people. They didn't know the law. But here comes these guys that know the law. You know, you would equate this something similar to what, what missionaries used to try to do in, the, in Africa and places like that. They would go in and these people would get converted and they weren't fully converted until they were singing gospel songs. And the only way to sing a gospel song was to take an organ into the jungle. Problem was that as they were traveling through the jungle and all the humidity and all the rainforest, and if you know anything about what an organ is, especially those of a long time ago, they were made out of paper and cardboard and everything just... So they were thinking, okay, they're still saved, but they had to use the music of that time of that day. And so you have these Christians, people that committed their life to Christ, understand that Jesus Christ paid for their sin. And then you have a church group come in and say, oh, well, yeah, you're not truly saved until you wear a suit and tie. You're not truly saved until you come to church at 11 o'clock. As a matter of fact, you're not truly saved unless you come to our church. If, if you're not in our church, then you're not truly saved. And there's certain things that you have to do. And we put all these traditions on people when you are saved by grace. You know, it was Augustine that said, and this is going to sound kind of funny, but he said, you know, what you need to do is love Jesus Christ with all your heart and then do whatever you please. Now, I know it sounds kind of funny, but see, when you love Jesus Christ with all of your heart, you're going to do what he pleases. His desire is going to be your desire. You do whatever you desire because when you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, you're going to do what he desires. And so when you understand grace, grace in its full significance and how it is given to you by God and, and he has saved you by grace, you start to realize, you know, I am saved. I am saved and I, I am free, number one, to live under grace. I can live under this grace. If you pull out your outlines, that'll be your first fill in. The reason I ask you to fill in is it gives me a break to take a drink of water. And so what Paul starts is this analogy. It's not an allegory, but it's an analogy. Paul suggests that the Judaizers and the Jewish Christians had been misled by these high-rooted, high-touting-themselves people. They, they really thought that they were being led there. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's already talked to us a little bit about this back in chapter 3, where he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Matter of fact, a little bit later, we're going to see in chapter 5, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. In other words, as James said, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The law was put there to show us, number one, that we need a Savior. We cannot keep this law. It, it is so rigid, so stringent, so God is so holy, and He demands perfection. And the Jewish people, they said, we can be perfect, 
They were self-righteous. They were legalists. They were trying to abide by everything of the law in order to show that they were perfect. And if by some chance they can get there, then they would say, well, see, I did it. Now, this is the background that Paul came from. Paul had this desire and this drive to, to, to please God by filling out everything in the law. Paul finally gave up when Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus. And he says to him, you know, if, if you really want to obey by, by the law, you have to obey all of it. If you miss one, just one, you're cursed, the Bible says. And Jesus used the same type of pictures and the same type of uh, idea when he told the Pharisees, you know, what are you doing? What are you trying to, you hypocrites, you know, you tithe from the, the cumin, the, the dill, the smallest seeds, and, and you meticulously go and you, you take out 10 and, uh, out of 100 to be able to give to the church or to the temple. You do that, but you, you, you neglect the worst, the, the best things, the righteousness. Matter of fact, Jesus told the disciples, if you cannot keep the righteousness above what the Pharisees have, then you, nobody can enter the kingdom of heaven. But he wasn't talking about their righteousness as obeying the law as much as it was in the righteousness that is imputed upon his disciples by God himself. And so there is this, this, this law that we call the moral law, and then there is the traditions or all the customs or all the symbols that are involved in the laws of Moses that have been taken away now because Jesus Christ has fulfilled that. And he came to fulfill those symbols. The veil of the temple was torn. We have access to the Father to boldly come to the throne of grace. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. When we did our Seder, we're not trying to obey any kind of law. We're not trying to do anything to be more Jewish. It was more of an analogy, a picture, an illustration to show the church why it was important to understand this. So that when we take our uh, and we partake of the Lord's table, and we take that juice, and we take that wafer, and we see where Jesus Christ took it out of the Passover, and the significance and the importance behind it, 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 it just illumines to us a little bit more of what God was doing from the very beginning. And so, if you haven't participated in one of our seders, uh, well, we just had one just recently, I want to encourage you. We have it online if you want to see it, but, but it's, it's, it's just powerful, it, it really is. Number two. Paul goes into this historical background. He goes into this historical background and he wants to talk to the people and show them. He says, you know what? I am free to pursue the promise. He says, we are now free to pursue the promise. He says in verses 22 and 23, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Paul reminds the, the people of the, of the forerunner of the Jewish faith, and he reminds them in how it all started. God came and visited Abraham, and he says to him, when he was uh, 95 or 96 and Sarah was 90, uh, 86, I, I believe they were 10 years apart, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a child. I'm going to give you a son. And, uh, and so or maybe they were younger because he was 99 when Isaac was born, and Ishmael was already a teenager, about 13 or so. But nonetheless, the promise came to both of these uh, patriarchs. It came to them at a time when they couldn't have children. They were barren. The Bible says that they were dried up. They had passed, Sarah had passed the age of being able to bear a child, but God promised them a child. And what Sarah did is she says, you know, this is taking a long time. This is like, you know, come on, God, you said it was going to happen. It hasn't happened. 
And so what, what she ended up doing was giving her maidservant to Abraham. Say, Abraham, I got, I got a plan. I have a plan, and I, have, I, I think we can help God out here. You know, when you start talking like that, okay, uh, please, somebody starts talking to you, we can help God out here by doing, you need to step back. Both the lightning's going to come down. And, and Sarah says, we can help out God if you take my maidservant and have a child through her. Now, Abraham, he stood back and he says, mm, okay, yeah, I don't even know if he actually thought about it. I don't even know if he prayed about it, because if he would have, he'd have said, that is a bad idea, Sarah. That is a bad idea, because it was. God never intended for a husband to have more than one wife, though they had them, and it caused a lot of problems. You know, can you imagine having, uh, what did David have, a thousand wives? You know, or Solomon had a thousand wives, you know, and, and, and having a thousand mother-in-laws? You know, I mean, just the problems that it causes within the family. You know, and so it just caused this, this divide between the two of them because as the story goes on, she conceives, they call the, ch- the child Ishmael, and when Ishmael is a teenager, then Isaac is born. Isaac is born and he's weaned, and at the time of his weaning, what Ishmael does, he starts mocking Isaac. Ishmael starts mocking him in such a sense that, you know, I was here first, and so I'm going to be the first one to receive from my father. And that's the way the lineage worked. If, if the father was the, the, the person that, that was in charge, he was the head of the household, everything went to the first son. And rightfully so, it should have been Ishmael's. And, and it's interesting because not only did Ishmael mock Isaac, but you see Hagar, the slave woman, also mocked Sarah when she conceived. She says, huh, I gave him a son, and you can't even do anything about what you're doing. And so there was this divide within them. And so what, what Paul is trying to show us is, look, Instead of going back to Abraham, where both these countries draw their their beginnings, instead of going back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation and the father of the uh, Arabian nation, the Arabic nation, instead of going back to Abraham, he goes to the moms. He says, the promise was to Sarah that I would give her a child. And since you have circumvented or circum uh, taken apart or went a different direction of what, what I wanted to do, then this is what's going to happen. And we'll see here in just a little bit that what took place is that God had told Abraham, you need to cast out that slave woman. As you cast out that slave woman, what that does is it separates. It, takes, it, it separates that which is holy and promised by God and that which is by the flesh and wasn't promised by God. Now, did God allow it to happen? Of course he did. Did he want that to happen? No, he didn't. You see, God has a perfect will. And then he has what we call a permissive will. Things that are very perf- perfect and they have to happen. The sun has to come up. The rain has to water the ground. And all those things that are uh, obeying God are his perfect will. And then he gives us his commandments. And he gives us a, a, a command to follow these. And his permissive will allows us to, to sin and allows us to do the things that aren't pleasing to God. We can sin and we can follow, fall into sin, but we cannot choose the consequences. We cannot expect a different consequence. And this is exactly a a beautiful picture of what happened here, uh, of what Paul is trying to say. And and as he goes on, he talks about the the law, especially the uh, pursuing the promise. He says, this promise is for you, and and it's for you and and your son, uh, Hagar, uh, excuse me, Ishmael. This promise is for you and Isaac that are to receive the promise of the inheritance. And what Paul is doing, he says, you've already received the promise. 
And I want you to pursue that promise. I want you to live in that promise because there are going to be people that are going to come in and try to destroy the church from within. They're going to come in thinking that, no, we can do it by the law. There's things that have to be done by the law. There's certain things that are able to come in, and we can bring that in and, and cause the church and help God in causing the church to grow. You know, one of the things that many people have been seeing just recently is the, uh, uh, the, the, I guess you can call it the evolution of the church as the church has been evolving. The church has been evolving to a point now where it seems as if, oh, yeah, well, you know, we can do this as if we, as if we can bring in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of the slave woman and bring it into conjunction with the kingdom of the free woman of, of, uh, of, Ish, of Isaac and bring those together and cause them to work together. And so we're starting to see a lot of churches that are, are starting to follow the culture. They follow the culture because they believe that that's what would be best to be able to grow the church. If we include the culture, if we bring them in, if we help them to see that the gospel message could potentially change them. But the, the, the thing has always been, the, per, the promise has always been, is that the promise is for those who have received that promise. And those that have not received that promise are cast out. You don't bring the two together and try to meld them together to make them something. You don't help God in growing the church. Jesus Christ himself said, I will grow my church. All we do is plant. All we do is scatter the seed. All we can do is wait. And he's the one that causes the growth. And when we start usurping his authority, when we start doing things in our own manner, in our own likeness, and the things that we want to do, well, it gets the church in trouble. And a lot of what we have now is this progressive evangelism that has, uh, that has really taken over. and It's taken shape where it's now what the person or, or the church desires to do because it will help God in growing the church. We have to be careful because we have to pursue the promise. And the promise goes all the way back to Abraham. And from Abraham through Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ up to now. You, you see, this is kind of what happened with the reformers back in the 1600s, when the reformers started to look at the church and how it, was, how it was just changing and evolving, straying away from the gospel message and, and asking the congregants and the people within the church, this is what you have to do. If you want to make it to heaven, you have to give X amount of money. If you want your loved ones to come out of purgatory, give more money and we'll pray for them. And a lot of it had to do with indulgences. That was just part of it. But it, it was, it was uh, salvation by works. And when Martin Luther rose up, he says, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches is that we're saved by grace, by, by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. And none of this other stuff that we are putting upon the people is going to get them saved. And, well, of course, the church, he wasn't trying to start his own denomination. All he was trying to do was to reform the church. And they didn't want to hear about it. They, they liked the fact that they had people under their control. And they can take from them whatever they wanted. Money, especially possessions, and, and, and they were as, just as crooked and evil as we all were. I mean, this is not just the, the church in general at that time, but also the Protestants. There was a lot of people that, that even continued on that practice as they pulled away from the church. But the fact of the matter is, is that Martin Luther never wanted to start another denomination. But that's inevitably what happened. And they warned him. They says, you know, if you go down this road, if you go down this road, what's going to happen is that anybody can do whatever they want. And he quoted Augustine by saying, well, yes, they will do whatever they want, and the desires will be God's desires, and they'll do what God desires. 
Well, unfortunately, it hasn't happened that way. Satan always finds a way of getting in there and turning things around. And from the very beginning, from the very beginning, when the church was born, Satan came in and started to pervert and distort and, and, and cause all this division. And, and yes, there is division. There is division. This is why doctrine is important. This is why we need doctrine. You know, some people have said, to some extent, you know, we don't need doctrine. All we need is Jesus. Okay, which Jesus? Well, the Jesus of the Bible. Which Bible? The Bible of the Mormons that says that Jesus and Satan are brothers? That, or how about the Bible of the Muslims that says that both Muhammad and Jesus are prophets and Allah is their God? Or how about the Bible of the Jehovah's Witnesses that says that Jesus was just a man, he was a good teacher, but he wasn't God? Or are you talking about the Holy Scriptures that say that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead? He is the one pre-incarnate and in, uh, incarnate in, in, in the Virgin Mary and was born by the Holy Spirit that was able to take upon our sins, live the perfect life, took upon our sins, died on the cross, resurrected on the third day. That Jesus? Well, yeah, that's what I mean. You see, doctrine is important. And, and, and if we don't understand that and bring it together, then, then what's going to happen is that we're going to fall for just about anything else. And when bad doctrine comes in, well, yeah, it's going to cause division. Of course it's going to cause division. Because the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures, what the Bible teaches about Jesus, is totally different than, and I'm just talking about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. You have the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The fact of the matter is, as Paul says, you know, you cannot live in unity with these groups. Well, what about living in unity with fellowship and believers? Are we supposed to live in, in unity and in harmony? Well, yes, of course, when the doctrine is correct. And if there's something that's not right, then we address it. Here it is. And we talk about what the, doc, what the Bible teaches about that. And so I've gone on too long about that. But, but what Paul is saying is you are people of promise and you pursue the promise. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul says, or the writer to the Hebrews, he says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. In spite of her ongoings and in spite of her own initiative to do things her own way, she believed. She says, okay, God, you're going to do what you're going to do. As a matter of fact, I still don't believe it. And when the angel of the Lord told her that she was going to have a child, she laughed. And she, the angel of the Lord says, why did she laugh? I didn't laugh. And when the child was born, guess what they called him? Laughter. Isaac. This is a joke. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, how can we have a kid at this age? Because it was counted to Sarah through faith. She conceived miraculously, not like Jesus Christ, but God caused for the two of them, both Abraham and Sarah, to conceive this child. Number three in the back of your outlines, I'm free to rejoice. I'm free to rejoice. In your, in your Bibles, starting in verse 24, it says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who promised. Who has a husband, excuse me. Again, we have this allegorically translated, and, and it should have been translated more as an analogy. 
Uh, an allegory is a story, as I mentioned, a fictional one that, you know, you can't find the, the true meaning in it. And, and the word allegory comes from two Greek words. It comes from alas, which means another, and allegoreo. Agoreo means to speak in public. Speak in public of another. In other words, speaking in public of something else. You say one thing, and, it, and, and this is what you're trying to get. You're trying to get two stories or two ideas or two thoughts and bring them together to have a meaning of, of promise or whatever the case may be. And it was used of stories that conveyed meanings other than what was, what was apparent. As Paul is doing here, he says, this is what's happening within the church. And look, look at what happened with Abraham. And Paul was, was just on point every single time, going back to the Old Testament, going back to the Word, going back to Scripture, always backing up his argument by Scripture. And he was, he was a master at it. And most of these uh, Pharisees, they, they, they can find the Scriptures. And so what Paul does is he goes back and he brings that story up again. He says, this is what happened. These two women, they are two covenants. They are two promises. They are two covenants. One's Mount Sinai, and the other one is Jerusalem, which is up above. One is the, the bondwoman and Ishmael, and the other one is the, the free woman and Isaac. And, and they, 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 one of them is by works, and the other one is by grace. And, and, and as he's bringing these two together, he's showing them, he says, you guys aren't slaves anymore. You're not part of that group anymore. You have been redeemed. You have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Live as if you are saved and free, which you are. You don't have to go back. Why do you want to go back? Well, what's, what's drawing you back to that servitude of slavery? Now, we could equate that to sin, but Paul is talking more about the law, the traditions, the things that have to be done, the musts and the you have to, you have to, you have to. Where what Paul is saying, you know, that, that is done. Right now, it has been done, it has been done, it has been done. You don't have to do because it's been done. Now continue to walk in Jesus Christ. Now one of the things that we touched a little bit upon a couple of weeks ago was the putting on of Christ, the sanctification process. And we're going to go through that eventually. We're going to go through that. But right now, right now, see, the regeneration is once and done. When you're regenerated, you're born again, it's once, it's done, it's it. You don't have to get born again and again and again and again. Just once is enough. The glorification process or point is when you are taken up to heaven. Either we die and we meet Jesus Christ and spend eternity with Him there, or He comes back and receives us in the tribulation. But the sanctification process, the process that's happening right now, that's the process that Paul keeps pointing to. This is what you have to do. This is where you have to live out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not try to live for your salvation or try to earn your salvation, but you got to work it through. Work it through and continue to put on Christ, put on the new man. And, and, and so this is the sanctification process, and that's just a whole series of sermons on how to live as uh, those that are in Christ Jesus. But Mount Sinai, Paul, Paul continues, he, he, it corresponds with the present Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, Paul is equating it as the the, the bondage, the people that were in bondage because they still held on to all the traditions. They held on to all the commandments, uh, and, and not the moral law, but all the various things that needed to be done in order for you to be saved. In other words, if you, if you were to commit your, your life to Christ and you were to come forward and say, you know, I really believe that God has convicted my heart. He's convicted my spirit because of this sin that I have in my life, and I just want to get away from it and, and, and take off. as well, you can't be saved until you're baptized. That's not scriptural. And that's kind of what Paul was trying to fight up against. The present Jerusalem, which is uh, Mount Sinai, is geographically 
the place where God gave the commandments. And Jerusalem is where it was enslaved or kept. And he says, that's part of the slave woman. That's part of the old tradition. That's part of the old school. You are now the new school. You're no longer under a tutor, a pedagogos, as we talked about. You're no longer under this pedagogos, this person that is overseeing you. You are now grown up and mature, and you should grow in Christ. Because, you see, our mother, our Jerusalem is in heaven. Our place is, is where that's what we look to. That's what we strive to. And that's what we look up to. Paul says to continue to encourage one another. Don't, do not neglect the gathering of the saints and encourage one another even more so as you see the day approaching. And we're, we're people of the, the future. We're people of heaven. We're people that long to leave this place. We're people that there is this, this void still within us and we know that we're not there yet and we strive for, we stride for it and we go forward and, and, and not looking behind us but striving ahead to what is ahead in Jesus Christ. Because we know that it's not all complete yet. And Paul says to the people in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul is pointing us to, continuously pointing us to heaven, heaven-bound, heavenward. You, you keep working, you keep going, you keep striving to make that place, and it, to get to that place. Not that you're trying to work your way there, but you're sanctifying the process. You're removing all this guilt and all this shame and all this sin from your life. And it's a process that you go through. Because if God just wanted to get you into heaven, if that's all he wanted to do, then, you know, the moment you committed your life to Christ, he'd have taken you to heaven. But there's two things that, well, there's actually one thing that you cannot do in heaven. One of them is, well, you can't sin. You know why? Well, because there is no sin there. And he left you here for, well, not to sin. That's not why he left you here. He left you here to get rid of that sin, but also to share the good news with others. That's another thing you can't do in heaven. You can't give the gospel to people in heaven because everybody there is going to be saved. And so in the process of doing life, we, we ask the Holy Spirit to remove all this stuff. And we try to remove ourselves. We are in this world, but we're not part of this world. And so Jerusalem... Jerusalem from heaven is our mother. That's where we're striving to go. See, Jesus Christ sets you free, as he says in John chapter 8. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You don't have to fall under this law, under the, the back part of, of, of what we came from. Many people have tried to be good. I remember my mom telling us, you know, liars, all liars go to heaven. Or excuse me, all liars go to hell. So and if you want to go to heaven, you've got to stop lying. And uh, I says, okay, I'll stop. Well, of course, I was lying when I said that. You know, it's just, and, and I had this fear of going to hell because I was lying. And then, you know, after that, I says, you know, it's, it's, it's worthless. I, I, it doesn't matter how much I try, I can't stop. And then if it wasn't that, it was something else. My mom would say, you know, you keep doing that, you're going to go to hell. You know, and I, and I said, all right, I'll stop. And, you know, tried for a little while. And, you know, I just couldn't. And I shared a little bit about my testimony with you, with you just recently. When I came to the church and I told the pastor I wanted my kids to go to heaven, and he says, what about you? I says, well, I, I can't make it anymore because I've done too many bad things, was my response. You don't know the things I've done, the places I've been, the things I've seen. Uh, there's no hope for me. I've, you know, my mama said, <laughs> there's, there's no hope for you anymore. And that's when he shared the grace of God with me. And, and we live in that fear, but when we live in, in the promise and, and we, we live in, the, in rejoicing and understanding what God has done for us. 
then we can rejoice. We can be happy. Paul continues, but the Jerusalem from above is free and she is our mother for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who is a husband. Paul was quoting Isaiah 54. 54. In Isaiah 54, the people were in Babylon and they were in captivity. And God is telling them, you can rejoice because you will be set free. You can rejoice because you will go home. There's more people of the, uh, of the slave woman. There's more children of the desolate one than more than those who had a husband. And yes, you're going to be persecuted, and it's going to happen, and it's going to come on you. And, and Paul says, you just keep striving. You keep going. That's the last point I want to touch on is I am free to persevere. I am free to persevere. Perseverance of the saints is a very... Uh, I, I think it, it's, it's a very good doctrine to really dive into and look at because it, it helps you. It helps you to understand that the things that are going on in your life are not because God hates you. I was ministering to a gentleman this last week, just lost a son, 29 years old. And, and the very tragic thing about this loss, uh, you know, good kid, strong, powerful uh, you know, sports, I mean, you name it. He was popular, good kid. But the very tragic thing about this loss is that he just lost his other son two years prior to a car accident, motorcycle accident. And so as I'm, you know, and, and that was two years ago. And last year, he lost his dad. So he's not a very old gentleman. You know, his oldest son was, like I said, 29. And, and, and as I'm talking to him, he's thinking, you know, I, I don't know what, what, what happened. I, you know, I, I don't know. What, what, I must have done some bad stuff. And, and you see, when you understand the perseverance of the saints on the power of the Holy Spirit to get you through just about anything, I shouldn't say just about, get you through anything, will get you through anything when you understand what Paul is writing, what God is trying to do in your life. And, and, he's, and he says to them, he says, now, brothers, like Isaac, our children of promise, but just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What Paul had guaranteed, what God had already instituted, what, what happened here because of the sin of both Abraham and Sarah, because of what they decided to do, to take it upon their own, in their own hands, and to help God out, now we have what we call the Arab-Israeli War. So many of you have been watching part of that on the news, and you're probably on one side or the other, and, and I pray that you are with the Israelis, but the, the, most of the news is causing them to look really evil and awful, and, and you know, they, they're the perpetrators, they're the ones that started, they're the, they're the ones, and, and, and this war has been going on for centuries, over 4,000 years. And you have this going on because of the sin of two people. Now, all of this, of course, was preordained by God because he's not going to let something happen. It didn't, oh my God, I can't believe you guys did that. That's not God. But he uses these incidences. He uses this sin. He uses this, uh, this historical event to discipline his people. And these two groups have been at it and they've been at odds ever since. So what, what Paul had said, you know, do as God said to Abraham. 
get rid of those people that are still in slavery. I don't know why you want to go back there. I don't know why you want to still follow that tradition. I don't know why you want to be under that law when you're under grace. He says, separate yourself from them. If you cannot come to a point of theological, doctrinal uh, understanding, then it's best to just separate. Just move on and, and continue to move on. And, and part, of the, part of the trend that's going on within our churches today is that a lot of people are very accepting. And, and you know, you, you probably have read and seen a lot of the things that are going on within our culture today and, and what, what's happening within the churches because we are very accepting. We want to bring in the darkness, the, the kingdom of darkness, to try to help out the kingdom of light when all we really need is just the Word of God. That's all we need. And so he says, once again, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, what Paul has, has mentioned here and what we have already in Scripture, we're going to receive persecution. I mean, it's going to happen. We're going to be persecuted from... And, and most of the persecution that happens within the church comes from other believers or denominations. It's always been, you know, Catholics against Christians, Christians against Catholics, and Jews against Muslims. And it, it's always this religious type of antagonism. And, and the war begins within the religious setting. We are right. You are wrong. And, we, and, and so it's, there's going to be a persecution. It's going to be that persecution that we, that we see about it in the Revelation where the, 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 the Antichrist is drunk with the, the blood of the saints. Again, Antichrist, a Christian religion, anti-religion, going up against the saints. And it's, there's going to be this battle. And throughout history, it continues to happen. And there's going to be this, this persecution. There's going to be a spiritual children of Sarah and Isaac that will receive an inheritance of the spiritual children. We're going to receive an inheritance. It's the second thing that Paul is saying. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. We have heaven to look forward to. We have something coming back to us or coming to us. We have a, a goal, a desire, Jesus Christ, heavenward. That should be our constant goal, our constant call, our constant going toward. Not focusing on the world, not trying to get everybody to appease each other and try to get everybody to come together. Let's all hold hands and sing, what's that song? Kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya. It's not going to happen. It's already prophesied. It's already stated. It's not going to happen. But we do have a, pos a possession. We have a heaven. And so we need to persevere. We need to keep going. We need to keep moving forward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it says, Be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men, he says. And be strong. Be strong because it's going to happen. You cannot just let every whim and every thought and every theory and everything else that's coming in to try to influence your decision. This culture is going to hell. It is, and it's unfortunate. And the church needs to make the difference within the culture, not the culture within the church. And here we stand. We can do that. Jesus used 12 people. Uh, God used a donkey. If God can use a donkey, I'm sure he can use me. You know, I'm, I'm sure of it. Uh, I, I said that one time in a, in a message, and one of the ladies that uh, used to write some songs, she wrote a song, if God can use a donkey, he can use Pastor Sal. <laughs> it was cute. I liked it. Susan, you remember Susan Heinegger? Yeah. 
If God can use a dog, if God can bring 12 ah, knuckleheads, for lack of a better term, these guys were just like fishermen. And, you know, if he can bring these, these 12 guys together and change the world, can you imagine what he can do with just a handful of men that are willing to stand firm and let nothing move them? Always giving themselves in the labor of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It's all it takes. It's for us to get on the same page, to move forward, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to endeavor to do something bold on June 25th. We're going to endeavor to, do, to proclaim the gospel to as many people that will listen. And our responsibility is just to scatter the seed. God causes it to grow. Our responsibility is just to, to share the word, and God is going to cause the increase. But we have to be ready. We have to be First of all, spiritually ready, prayed up, ready to go. We have to understand that God is the one in control, not I. I cannot convince anybody to get saved. Because if I can convince you to get saved, then that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. I cannot just make somebody or whatever the case may be. That is God's doing. We are the vehicles God wants to use. And I pray that we can all come together and, and see what God can do when we unite as one and bring the message to this part of San Bernardino. Let me ask you to stand. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so, Father, many of us don't even realize on how we've been saved or realize from what we've been saved. Some of us don't even understand the full meaning of what this portion of Scripture is. And I knew it was going to be difficult, and, and it, some, it was somewhat. But Lord, I pray that we can get the, the gist of it, that we are free to live under grace. And that grace, Lord, is, is what you've given us. And we know that we are forgiven. It does not give us a license to continue to sin. It does not give us a license to continue in our own bad behavior. But there is sanctification that has to happen within the process of I know that I'm free to pursue the promise that you gave Abraham, Isaac. And it was passed down from Isaac to Jacob to the 12, uh, the 12 patriarchs, and even now to Jesus Christ and up to us. And we thank you, Father, for giving us that promise. And we know that every time that you promise that it is true, and we can hold on to that promise in spite of what's going on in the world. And so, Father, help us to rejoice in the fact that we are of that elect, of the group that you have called, that we are part of your family, that we are those that you have chosen. And we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for the, the love of Jesus Christ and the, the blood that was shed and how it was given to us. And Lord, if we look deep down within ourselves, we know that those of us that, that have come to that saving knowledge of who your son is, we know and we recognize that we didn't do anything to deserve that. We couldn't. And looking within ourselves, we, we even say we, we don't deserve it. And we, we even acknowledge that. And, Father, that's exactly what grace is. You give it, not because we deserve it, but you give it because we don't deserve it. And so, Father, we thank you also for the, the strength and the power and, the, and just the ability to be able to persevere during persecution, looking forward and upward toward heaven and recognizing that there is a, a greater goal to be able to proclaim the word. And so that power that gives us, the power that you give us to persevere and to move forward in this, on this planet, through our lives and our families and our homes, in our jobs, through this community, 
in our culture, in our government, that power that you give us to persevere, Father, I pray that you can just, just bring it in our, in, our, in our lives in such a way that we know and we sense and we realize that this is not by our own doing, but it's by your doing. And so, Father, when the persecution does come, I pray, Lord, that you, you help us to withstand, to stand firm. Thank you, Lord, once again for this, this time and, and the, your message and getting us through this portion of Scripture, I pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, Amen. Amen.